The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for His kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow us on Facebook and visit ShadyGrovePCA.org. I've been looking at people's faces more the last few weeks and just seeing a lot of um, hopelessness and a lot of anxiety, a lot of worry. Um, my point is, is that this is a time where hope is lacking, and I think we're seeing that the world is pretty dim right now, and I think we have an, a great opportunity before us as the church to shine out the love of Christ. And if I would have told you in January, I mean, to talk about the uncertain times we're living in, if you'd have told me in January that you're going to be preaching from the back parking lot with shorts and a put-on-love t-shirt, and you'll have about maybe a, about a quarter of the church, maybe a third of the church here with you, and you'll be under these canopies trying to hide the sun. I just said that's a bad dream. You know, that's really weird, right? We're living in some really different times. Um, but as hope, as we think about hope, as the world defines it, hope is more of a wish. It's more of a, a longing, a craving. It's not something we really have a certainty of. And I think for us, as we're thinking about the future, many of us are wondering just questions related to, to hope as, are my parents going to live through this pandemic? Am I going to get COVID-19? Are some of the people that have struggled with the more long-term effects of COVID-19, are they going to be fully healed? Will my business survive Will I have a job this Christmas when the PPP money runs out? Are things going to get any better on Capitol Hill? Will peace re be restored in our country? Will any of the statutes, statues, statues survive after all this uh, current unrest in our country? Well, as you think about hope, hope is defined as a noun and a verb in our culture, and basically it's a feeling of expectation. It's a desire for a certain thing to happen. We might say he, he looked through his belongings in hopes of finding a pair of sunglasses, or the interview went well and he's hoping to get a call back. She's hoping to get a job offer. You see, hope is just kind of a wish, a desire, but it's not based on any type of absolute certainty, whereas the biblical idea of hope is something completely different than that. Our biblical understanding of certainty is based on a confident longing, but a certain expectation. It's a certain expectation that um, I would define it like this. This is how I would define biblical hope. It's the confident longing and certain expectation and waiting upon eternal realities of things not seen that lead in this life to contentment, courage, comfort and affliction, patient perseverance, purity, joy, peace, and love. And the beginning of Colossians, this couldn't be any clearer when Paul writes, since we heard of your faith in Christ and your love for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. So we see that faith in Christ and love for one another, they spring from something deeper. They spring from hope. 
And this hope, biblical hope, is not a wishful thinking. It's something completely rooted in history and the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so perhaps, and this is my prayer, is that the uh, current unrest in our country, the current unrest for all of us that's a great shaking up of our, our core values, might it shake up our foundation? And may it change where we're really placing our hope. Where are you getting your identity, your validation? Where are you getting your kudos in life? Thomas Chalmers, in his classic sermon, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection, he says, the heart is never left without an object. The heart always has an object. The question is, what is its object? Its desire for one particular object may be conquered. But as to its desire for having some one object or another, that's unconquerable. The only way to dispossess it of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. And so my, my prayer is that, that our heart, which is often our affections are set on this world and the desires for this world, but now God is shaking all of that up. And may all of that unrest of things that we would have been captivated and content with all the things that, uh, the trivials of this world, well, when many of those have been taken from us. May the Lord get our attention. And I've got good news this morning, is that there's something better that God is, has for us, and it's what we have in the gospel. And in Colossians 3, 1 to 14, we're going to look at faith, hope, and love, but actually in the order of hope, faith, and love. And so if you have your Bibles, you want to follow along, Colossians 3, 1 to 14, the first four verses is about hope, and then verses 5 to 11 is about faith, and then love is verses 12 to 14. So listen carefully. These aren't my words. This is God speaking this morning. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you shall, will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever is earthly in you, sexual immorality, purity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And these two you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, Malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek or Jew or circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against one another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Think with me for a minute. I meant to bring a, a, a big, luscious apple with me, but I forgot to bring my apple. But imagine a big apple tree, and it's growing your favorite apples. And for that apple tree to give you that luscious apple or apples to eat, the tree has to have roots, and roots that go down deep, and they go down deep to the, to the water and to the nutrients 
so that the tree itself can begin to grow, the trunk and the branches and the, and the leaves, and then ultimately to produce the apples, the delicious apples. Well, in this illustration, hope is the roots. Hope would be the roots that go down deep. And from that hope of that bedrock, that faith would be the leaves that continue to, to grow now with the trunk and the branches and the, and, the, and the leaves that grow that tree. So faith would be the tree. And then the love is the fruit that others get to enjoy. And that's what Paul is, is getting at here. I'm sure you're familiar with Jim Elliott's famous quote, that he's no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He actually got the quote from somebody else, but we won't go there. It's a wonderful quote. And the very statement is built on what? It's built on a future hope. And the future hope is something that you cannot lose. It is a bedrock certainty. And so you're willing to give what you can't keep because by faith you know that this world and its desires are passing away. These things are already on their way out. The fleeting pleasures of this life. And you can't keep on to your life. What good is that? What good is it to gain the whole world if we lose our soul? And so the certainty of hope is this bedrock that enables us to then live and propel our lives to live differently by faith. And so Paul is getting at absolute certainties in verses 1 to 4. So look at this. Our hope is tied to history. Where is Jesus right now? What does it say at the end of verse 1? I mean, when it actually gives you the where is. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. You see, we know that in time, place, and history, Jesus literally died on the cross for our sins. And on the third day, he rose again from the dead. And then he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God. And he's coming again in power and glory. Well, he's at the right hand of God right now. That's the place of highest honor, highest dignity, highest power, highest authority. And Jesus is not below nor above God, but he is God and he's acting as God. And God is acting through him. And Peter tells us in 1 Peter 3.22 that... He is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. He's the ruler of all the kings on earth. And Paul adds to this and is talking about this position that he's at, that now he's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, praying for his people, his church. So, and that also says that he's seated which is important because after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty of God. And so Christ is exalted on high. There isn't any other place to get. You know, this is the ultimate shotgun. You know, this is the place to be, the the big seat. He has it. And so then the question is, well, where are you this morning? You see, where is your confidence this morning? Where are your roots? What are your roots going down deep into? Is it going into that? Is that your confidence? Or is your identity, your security, your validation, are your roots going down into something that's very temporal and fleeting or frustrating? Because at the end of chapter 2, Paul is talking about the things that won't work. 
And he says that basically self-made religion and asceticism and severity of the body, they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Meaning, it's not in your effort. It's not in your diet. It's not in your exercise. All these different things that people do to, to, to live longer, to stay prettier longer, to stay healthy longer, to be, you know, all of the yoga practices, all these things. They can, they can have some practice maybe amongst yourselves, but before God, it's nothing. It is of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Matter of fact, it's probably feeding it. You will continue to love everything but Jesus, and we will continue to serve ourselves if the self is on the throne, and that's what you're putting your roots down deep into. And so maybe your foundation, though, is beginning to crack, and you're seeing this ain't really working for me. And so when you trust in Christ for salvation, if you believe that Jesus died for your sins and that he rose from the dead, well, look at what it says about you in these verses, because it's all about uh, being united to him. You see, his position is your position. His victory is your victory. His death is your death, and his resurrection is your resurrection. I mean, if you were on the plane when Sally landed on the, on the Hudson, you survived, and you walked out, and you, you did it all because Sully did it for you. Sully made a great landing. Sully did great. They made a movie. He wrote a book, right? Sully did it, but all the people survived because they were identified with him on the plane. When David won the victory over Goliath, and all Israel won the battle because David represented them. And so when Jesus, representing you and me, went to a cross, bore our sins in his own body on the tree, so we might die to sins, live for righteousness. He destroyed hellish powers and authorities, triumphing over them, put them to open shame. You see, our identity and our roots need to be tied here. And so if we believe that Jesus is in heaven, well, where does it say we are in this text? It says that we have died, and our life is now hidden with Christ in God. And now when Christ, who is your life, appears, you will appear also with him in glory. And so the idea here is that it's all about the old, the old Charlie and the new Charlie. You know, the old crystal and the new crystal. The old Bruce and the new Bruce and the old Sarah and the new Sarah. Because the old self died. It died when Jesus died. The old self, the old Tammy died. And now the new Tammy came to life. And guess where the new Sarah and the new Bruce and the new Tammy and the new Charlie, all these people, guess where they are now? We're in Christ. But it's hidden, it's hidden from the world. It's hidden right now, we're in him. But don't worry, it won't be hidden for long. Because when he appears, we too will appear with him in glory. It's going to be manifest. And just as he is glorified, we will be glorified. Because everything that Jesus accomplished that he did, we will get. So when he rose, both uh, for us now, we, we see in this text that spiritually, we've already died. And spiritually, we've already been raised. And spiritually, we've already been placed in heaven with Christ. But there's coming a day 
when physically, just as Christ rose from the dead, we too will physically rise from the dead. And just as Christ was glorified, we too will be glorified. And when he appears in glory, we too shall appear with him. And he's coming on the clouds with his people with him. And our bodies will be raised from the grave and united with him. And our, our body and our spirit will be made whole in a glorified body. That's going to happen, the Bible says. And so that's the already not yet tension that the Bible talks about with our salvation, is that we have already died to sin, and so now we're to live in light of this death that's happened. So because this death has happened, why are we, will we be trying to resurrect or resuscitate the old man? Why would you try to feed the old man who's, who's dead and try to resurrect him? We're to set our, our hope fully, the Bible says, on the grace that is to be revealed to us. And so we are no longer what we were. And now we are moving on to our destination. And so the whole thing of what Paul is getting at about hope, faith, and love is to live in light of the hope. Because we have hope, that changes everything about how to live. So the imperatives as we always like to say, follow the indicatives or the commands, follow the truth statements. And Paul literally says what verse 1 says is, seek up, seek up. The things is supplied. That's not in the original. It's just seek above or seek up. Seek the things that are above and then set your mind. And set your minds not on the earth. And so the idea is that these earthly things these earthly desires, the old self. Well, don't set your mind anymore there because that's no longer your destination. That's when you were walking in that and you were on your way to the wrath of God and the wrath of God is coming on the sons of disobedience. It is coming and you were going that trajectory, but something radical happened and hopefully that's, and if that hasn't happened, then you need to fear the wrath to come. And so now... Paul says, seek and set. Seek your, seek your, uh, set your minds on things above. Seek the things that are above. And it's the idea of what people use in our expression today. They say, uh, well, we need to be locked and loaded. You know, people talk about locked and loaded. What do they mean? Ladies are looking at me like I'm strange. That's with a gun. You know, locked and loaded is you're ready to fight. You're ready to fight sin and love others. We're to be ready this leads to faith in the present. So now in light of who you are, because you've already died, and we're not going to revive the old man and try to resuscitate this man who's died, the old Charlie. So by faith, we're now to put to death the things that remain, the things that are earthly. And, it, and it, they mainly revolve around two things. The first category would be the lust category. second category would be the anger category. And out of this, the lust is all these other, you know, the porneia is all sexual immorality outside of marriage between a man and a woman. Anything else is porneia. It's sexual immorality. And the lust, the epithumia, the covetousness, Paul just says, look, that's idolatry. That's a violation of the first commandment. It's a violation of the second commandment. You're exchanging the truth of God for a lie, serving the creation, rather than the creator, and you're fixing your heart on the wrong treasure. And so, 
God is offended by that, and it's because of these things that his wrath is coming. You see, only the Spirit can really convince us of the, of the two big things of this text, is that there is a wrath of God coming, and that his love for his people is really special. You see both in this text. But the reason that God has to punish sin is because God is holy. God is righteous. You know, I just got done watching with our, a couple of our family members who watched Athlete A on, on Netflix. And it's a, a vivid documentary of how the USA gymnastics team, girl, girls gymnastics team, the people on top didn't punish sin. They didn't, they didn't punish sin because they loved something better. They loved their reputation, and they didn't want to deal with Larry Nasser. They didn't want to deal with hearing about children being, or their, their girls being molested. And they didn't deal with it. And so Steve Penny, who was the head of this, he comes out looking terrible in this whole documentary because he's more concerned about his image. And he's not dealing with something that needs to be punished. If you don't deal with sin, then what happens if you're a judge and you're the person on top is that you end up looking really stupid. God is not stupid. God is the judge, and he will bring judgment on sin. And that's what he did at the cross. And so all of us are guilty. And so the key is to put our trust in Christ now so that we will not face the wrath to come because it will have already been punished in Jesus. Charles Spurgeon tells an illustration of two men that were, they were caught in a current, they were in a river, and they were headed for a waterfall. And they both were looking to grab onto something to save their life. And the one grabbed a log that was floating, and the other grabbed a rope. They both thought they were safe, but one died and one didn't. What are you really grabbing onto? Are you grabbing onto a log that's heading for the waterfall? Are you grabbing onto the rope that's actually going to save you? Because there is a waterfall coming, the wrath of God that's on these things of all of the porneia, all the lust, nepithumia, and all these sinful desires of the flesh, and then all the anger that spews up out of us, obscene talk and, and uh, wrath and malice, and all these things that you're seeing bubbling to the surface right now in our culture. And the Bible says that Christ has come and purchased us. We were bought with a price, with his precious blood, that we're not our own. And so we're not down with these other things anymore. There's roots are growing in a different direction. And so the whole contrast here is between the, where the old self is going and where the new self is going. And now by faith, the old self is dead, and I'm to put it to death because it's already died and needs to be buried, and I'm not to resurrect him. But the new self is to be put on, the new self that's being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. And so then he goes into this imagery about what, what kind of clothes you're to wear. I mean, put these other things off. Take them off. Get rid of it. Get rid of anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk. And I would just say this, as far as, um, there's so much controversy right now about our president. And I don't, I don't really care where you stand in that sense about whether you're for him or against him. 
I just want you to think about from a wisdom point of view, because families are being destroyed, churches are being destroyed, social media is blowing up, and it's really often about one person. And it's really, is that really where your affection is? Is that really what your ultimate love is? I mean, you live in Montgomery County. We haven't voted in a Republican candidate in over 32 years. So if you really hate him, you've already won. And if you really love him, you've already lost. You're in Maryland. It's not going to really make a difference. I hate to say that, but I mean, vote your conscience. But what I'm saying is people are dividing over this so badly, the polarization. And there's times where you can speak the truth about things, but if you see things escalating and it's splitting entire families, where families aren't even talking to each other, church members not talking to each other, unfriending each other, has nothing to do with Jesus. It's, a, it's an epithumia. It's a lust for who's going to be on the, on the, on, in the White House. And the kingdom's not coming through the White House. The kingdom is already on high. He's the ruler over the kings of men. Vote your conscience. Love these things, but don't make them ultimate because it's dividing. It's divisive. And as you communicate with your families, your neighbors, your coworkers, and how we communicate on, on social media, I just hope we're putting away the old, the old clothes. Throw them away. Put on the new man. The new man is God's chosen people. We're holy and beloved. Put on compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, make sure you put on this last garment because this is the belt that's the most important thing. It's going to bind everything and hold everything together. Whatever you do, put on love because it binds everything together in perfect maturity is the idea. We grow up with love. Without love, we're not doing anything. We can be the most knowledgeable person. We can have truth till we're blue in the face. Knowledge puffeth up. Love builds up. And the word forgive here is actually the word charizomai, where we get the word charis or the word for grace. God has graced you. He has graced you. And so he says to you, grace each other as the Lord has graced you. Tim Keller tells an apparent true story of two Chinese men in the 1900s, and I've looked all over the internet to find the veracity of this story and haven't found it, but it was such a good illustration, I'm sharing it with you anyways, that he says it's true. So there was an older brother and, and a younger brother in San Francisco in the early 1900s, and the younger brother was a rebellious kid, and he was on the wrong side of the law, and he was gambling at one point, and he got into a fight, and he killed somebody. And his blood was all over his, his clothes, and he ran away. And people saw him, and he identifi they identified him. He ran home, he threw his clothes on the floor, and he tried to hide them, changed clothes, and took off and fled. And his older brother saw what had happened. He saw the clothes. He knew the police were coming. And guess what the older brother did? He looked just like him. So the older brother put the bloodstained clothes on. And the police came in. They recognized him. They arrested him. They charged him. And they executed him for the crime. 
The younger brother later came to his senses and in great contrition came and told the authorities what had happened, and they told him that it was too late. The crime has been paid for. We can't arrest you. You see, if you're in Christ, the crime's been paid for. We can't arrest you. There is no charge. God doesn't require double jeopardy. God has graced you. And so now who can you love and give that grace to in return? And in the context, you, it was a great melting pot in that day, just as it is in our day. He's talking about Jew and, and Greek and slave and free and circumcised and uncircumcised and Scythian and barbarian. And the Scythian was the, the absolute bottom of the barrel, uncultured, worse than a barbarian. And they have these different elements of society. And what, what Paul is saying is, is not that those things, those diversities aren't important. They, they're, they're important. They're, they're, they're religious distinctions. They're sociological distinctions. Um, there's um, cultural distinctions, class distinctions, caste distinctions. They're all being kind of laid out there for us. And Paul is saying Christ is in all. He's in all these people. Christ is all, and he's in all these people. So what are we to do? We're all one now in Christ. We're to love each other. And so for us now, as God's people, it means God's love for us. I mean, I was listening to a little bit of Bob Goff this week. I don't know if you guys have ever listened to him. He's quite interesting to listen to. I wouldn't read him for his exegesis, but he's a great storyteller and has amazing stories of love. But he talks about how God's love for us is mainly two things. It's sacrifice and it's presence. He sacrificed his son and now he's with us always. He's Emmanuel. And so our love should look like that. It should look like sacrifice and it should look like presence. And he says grace means we can put the chalk away and stop keeping score. And then he said this, and he kind of said this as an offhanded comment. But he said the word beloved here, you know, when it says we're his chosen people, holy and beloved. He says, if you're not hearing Jesus say to you, beloved, over your worst shameful sin that you ever committed, if you're not hearing Jesus say beloved over that, you're not hearing the voice of Jesus. Do you really believe that you're beloved? You see, what I was saying at the beginning here is that I can't convince you that God loves you. Only the Holy Spirit can ultimately do that. Tom Holliday is a good man in our presbytery. He's been preaching for over 30 years. And he said in one of his sermons, he said, I've been preaching for over 30 years, and it's taken me a long time, but I'm finally convinced that I cannot convince anybody that God loves them. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. And bring the truth home to their heart that's absolutely life-changing. You see, when the Holy Spirit comes and changes that and really convinces you that he doesn't just love you abstractly or nebulously and loves everybody the same, but no, he, he chose you before the foundation of the world and loves you particularly and has forgiven your particular sins and wrote beloved over that. When you get that kind of language, that music over your heart, then the, the frosty, the frosty, the snowman that's in all of us, the ice in our hearts, it just melts away because it's melted by the love of God. 
Listen to these two statements that Jesus says in, in the in Gospel of John. And if we're reading fast, we'd probably read over both these verses. But Jesus says two of the most profound statements. He says in John 15, 9, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Just read on. Keep reading. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Wait a minute. What did I just read? As the Father has loved me. As the Father has loved Jesus, Jesus says, so have I loved you. Do you believe that? I mean, do you believe that? I once asked somebody if they believed that. I said, man, I said, what would happen if you believed that? They said, I believe that. It would change everything in my life. <laughs> I said, yes, it would. It would change everything. How about this one? Jesus praying for the unity of his people that they might be perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you've loved me. The Father loves his people even as he loves his Son. And when he says, this is my beloved Son, isn't that what he says about us? And isn't what that the Holy Spirit pours into our hearts? It just says the love of God has been poured into our hearts by his Holy Spirit, Romans 5.5. 5. Just pours it in. Do you believe it? Richard Lovelace says, faith, faith that is able to warm itself at the fire of God's love, instead of having to, having to steal love and, and self-acceptance from other sources, is actually the root of holiness. Let me read that again. Faith that is able to warm itself at the fire of God's love, instead of having to steal love and self-acceptance from other sources, is actually the root of holiness. I believe that. So in conclusion, hope leads to faith, which leads to love. The faith in, in Christ Jesus, the love for all, all the saints, because of the hope is the beginning of Colossians. And here he's re rephrasing it or repackaging it. And we could say maybe as Peter says it, Peter says to us in 1 Peter 1, he says, prepare your minds for action, being sober-minded, set your hope fully. Set your hope fully on what? Next election? Set your hope fully on what? A cure for COVID-19? Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Set your hope fully on that. And then he says, as obedient children, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, knowing that you are ransomed from these futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with Perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was manifested in the last times for your sake, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. You see the triad of faith, hope, and love again. You see, it's the same, and I'm just in conclusion, it's this is what the, the people in, in the book of Hebrews did. It said, you had compassion on those in prison. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you yourselves knew that you had a better possession and an abiding one. Since you knew you had this great hope that was certain, you're willing to go and identify and you even took the the plundering of your property 
because you knew you had a better possession and abiding one. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. The roots were in what? The hope that was before him. So Moses has everything. He's got all the treasures of Egypt. He has, he has the world as his oyster. He has everything, and he lets it go. Why? Because he knows that doesn't compare. It's not even close. It's not even to be compared with the glory that is to come. And so he suffered mistreatment, identified with the people of God, chose to identify with them because he was looking to a greater reward. What are you looking to this morning? What are your roots really sinking down into? What is your reflection? As William Temple said, a man's religion is in his solitude. What is in your solitude? What is your validation coming from? Is it in your union with Christ and what you have in him and this foundation that can't be taken from you? And now that this hope has so compelled you and changed you that you no longer see people like you used to, as Paul says, now the love of Christ compels us and constrains us. May that be each of us, and may he lead us into the good deeds that he'd have for us. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that our hope will grow. That, Lord, we be reminded of all that we have. And that it would so compel us and change us that we would see even the sufferings of this life are not to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed. I pray that, Lord, your love would compel us in particular to love and good deeds for such a time as this. Please fill us with your spirit and accomplish your good purposes in each of us and as a church. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.